0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I definitely think that the entire security posture of the healthcare industry has been really damaged by COVID 19.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's Law and Policy Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at a tool that can help determine if your image is part of a facial recognition library. I've got the story of law enforcement dodging public records rules through the use of encrypted messaging apps. And later in the show, my conversation with Jenna Waters from True Digital Security. We'll be looking back at the last year of COVID and how that's affected privacy, particularly in the medical field. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash FedCyber. That's aka.ms slash FedCyber. All right, Ben, we got some good stories this week. Uh, why don't you start things off for us?
2: So mine comes from what the former president would call the failing New York Times. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think they write some great articles. And this is one of them from their technology section. Uh, written by Cashmere Hill and Cade Metz. This is about a new online tool called Exposing AI that lets individuals search many image collections that companies use to build up their artificial intelligence systems. This tool matches images from Flickr, which is an online photo sharing service that most of us uh, haven't heard about or used for the past 15 years, but it offers (laughs) us a window into how much data is going into these artificial intelligence technologies. So this Hmm. tool allows you either by posting the URL to a Flickr photo or the metadata or a username or a tag to see whether your photos make up part of the database that feeds into the machine learning of AI. And it's really illuminating. Now, personally, Hmm. I don't have any photos on Flickr. Uh, I did not make use of that service. I felt like that was something that younger kids did when I got older and older people did when I was younger. I was never <laughs> I was never in the proper age range to be a Flickr user. So it is limited to, to that photo sharing service, yeah. but it is very illuminating. These databases that help AI learn how to operate consist of millions of photos, including some photos of us, of ourselves. Now, The reason this is potentially consequential is some of these AI systems are being used by some of the worst actors in the world. Most notably, the Chinese government is using it against the Uyghurs, perpetuating what has essentially become a genocide in China. So I think it's kind of a wake-up call for people to see that some of the information that is going into making up these systems, these systems that can have very detrimental effects potentially on human rights – are coming from our photos against our will and, and inadvertently. And even though this particular database is only using Flickr photos, we know that in building up artificial intelligence systems, boatloads of data go in so you know, that the AI system can engage in machine learning, can learn how to identify patterns based on our photos, based on our internet history, based on Wikipedia entries, etc. So this is just one of those articles that I think should open people's eyes that we're all contributing to this universe That's creating these artificial intelligence systems that potentially are having very detrimental effects on humanity, frankly.
1: Yeah. This is fascinating. Uh, you know, there was a time mm, uh, 15 years ago, I guess, when I had a Flickr account and and made use of it. It's been a while. But uh, I, a, a colleague of mine, who uh, his name is David Hobby, he runs a website called Strobist, which if you're a photographer, you probably heard of. It's one of the most popular photo, sort of teaching photo sites uh, around. So I did a quick hashtag search for the term Strobist on this site, and sure enough, up popped a picture of my friend David's son. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so now you I'll have <laughs> some uh, personal connection
2: on this on this database.
1: Yeah. Uh, among other, I mean, there's a lot of other photos that are in here because there's a, you know, hashtag strobist is a, probably a pretty common tag from back in the day. But um, interesting that of the photos that came up here, one of the top ones was, again, a, a picture of my, my friend's son here, which is... Uh, Well, that kind of brings it home, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it makes it more real. You know, one Mm -hmm. thing that's also disturbing about this is a lot of researchers have built data sets for AI for the purposes of doing research. So they talk about Uh, This interface called Megaface, which was built by scientists at the University of Washington several years ago, they built a system to help develop AI. They collected billions of photos without the consent of the people uh, whose images they collected, and they made this an open source tool so other people could use this as a a research resource. It was downloaded 6,000 times, this article says, by companies and government agencies around the world, including entities like Northrop Grumman, one of our biggest defense contractors. And TikTok, which is a a Chinese uh, social media application. Hmm. So even people who are developing AI systems for research purposes or think that it's going to have a limited reach, they're still collecting this relatively unlimited universe of data points. Data points that have been obtained without the consent of the users and have been Mm -hmm. downloaded by powerful people and powerful institutions. Because this interface was downloaded so many times, the researchers at the University of Washington saw the detrimental effect it was having and they actually took it offline. You know, I just think it, it goes to show you that everything we put on the internet goes out into the ether and mm-hmm. you never know how it's going to be used. It can be used against us when we're talking about criminal investigations, etc. It can be used to augment our experience, having personalized advertisements, but everything we put on the internet also can be used for something like building up an artificial intelligence system. And we don't think about that when we post our photos to Flickr. I just think mm-hmm. it's it's something that's, that's really good to help build awareness, that everything that goes on the internet feeds into this ecosystem. And I just think it's not something that we really consider with much regularity.
1: Yeah. You use the phrase that they're using these images without the people's consent, the people who are in these images. Do they need their consent? If these are posted publicly and available for scraping... Do they have to ask? Should they have to ask? No.
2: So in limited circumstances, depending on what state you're in, I think Illinois is the only state that requires consent for this type of photo scraping. Uh, Hmm. But in most circumstances, they don't have to ask. It's not required. You've posted it publicly. And once it's on the internet, it is certainly available for scraping. So there's definitely no legal obligation to obtain the consent of all of the users. And it would be impossible to build these vast AI systems uh, and to augment machine learning if we had to obtain consent from the millions of people whose photos were scraped from the internet. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you can understand why we aren't requiring consent. I think that would inhibit the innovation of these systems. But, you know, on the other hand, it does mean that people need to be more careful, frankly, about what they're posting on the internet. Or at least more mindful that things that can seem harmless, like your engagement photos are potentially being used for something that you never would have anticipated when you posted them.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the the part that can be so disturbing, which is when when it's just sort of out of the blue, you find that uh, (laughs) something you just put out there for one reason is being used for another. And a reason perhaps you had never considered.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it should make us just kind of more mindful of everything we post. I mean, maybe after reading this article, people will think twice. Like, what could what I'm about to post be possibly used for? Whether Mm -hmm. it's a social media post, whether it's a photo, it is going to be part, probably, of some machine learning process just based on the vastness of the internet. And so, you know, even if we still decide to post something, I think it's this article will at least force me to think twice about it. And so maybe, you know, or not just this article, but but the database itself. So maybe that's something that's useful.
1: I wonder what, what the feasibility would be of having a, an opt-out database for these sorts of things, you know, a publicly facing sort of thing where, for example, if I didn't want my image used for these, I could... Ironically yeah. unlearn, post an image unlearn, of myself. Unlearn my <laughs> well, face. Right, it would it would require posting an image of myself, which of course there's the irony there. Yeah. But <laughs> but the systems could routinely check against the opt out database and say, Hey, if you come across this guy he's out, you know, he does, he, you do not have permission, you know, or, or please, I don't know, you know, you get where I'm going with this. I
2: do, I do. It is funny that you'd have to upload your own photo. It kind of reminds me of the old Simpsons joke about the walled inspector. Like,
1: how did I fall for
2: that? You know,
1: it, <laughs> if someone was saying
2: they're building an opt-out database, but really they just wanted to collect your your photos. All right, uh, right. <laughs> that, that might be a, a very effective way of doing so, saying, yeah. you know, we can protect your privacy if you upload your photo also your social security number and mother's. Baby. Right.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right. Well, it's an interesting story, again, from the New York Times. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. My story this week comes uh, from the folks over at Tech Dirt. And uh, hat tip to uh, Jason and Brian over at Grumpy Old Geeks who brought this to my attention. This is a story about uh, Michigan State police officials who've been dodging public records obligations by using encrypted messaging apps. It's an article by Tim Cushing, again, over at TechDirt. It turns out that some folks who had been doing some public records requests for some law enforcement folks, some state police officers in Michigan, noticed that there were way fewer exchanges than one would have expected about a particular topic when they got the stuff back that they had requested and it turns out that these officers had been using the signal app the in- in- encrypted messaging app a very very popular and one of the functions of signal not only to, is it end-to-end encrypted for security but it also has functionality where uh, messages can auto delete after a certain amount of time they just disappear and they're they're gone forever and evidently the police officers were using this app both to keep their interactions out of the public eye, uh, but also to have them disappear in this sort of way. And that goes up against the obligations that they have as, as public officials to retain these records. There are quite often uh, public records retention rules, and this bumps up against that. What do you think about this, Ben? Ben?
2: This is a great story. It sort of reminds me of the public officials who would hand down decrees on COVID-related restrictions. So, you know, limited indoor dining or, you know, other restrictions. And then they'd be caught at fancy restaurants, you know, so the rules <laughs> the rules don't apply to them.
1: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> it is funny that there is such a concerted effort among law enforcement at all levels of government, state, federal, to have a back door to get into these encrypted messaging applications for law enforcement purposes. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of things that, for good reason, we allow law enforcement to do, but we don't allow the general public to do. You know, mm-hmm. if the law enforcement tackles a criminal suspect who's trying to escape... They're not going to be arrested for you know, assault or battery, and I think that's that's reasonable. But it is sort of interesting that when they have an opportunity to take advantage of encrypted messaging applications, they are doing so, despite their public posture, which is that these applications are dangerous, they're going to inhibit the work of law enforcement. And it's actually going to have a very substantial effect on the case at issue here, One of, uh, somebody used to work for the Michigan State Police, he was an inspector by the name of Michael Hahn, sued the department, basically saying that he was unlawfully terminated, and He went through the discovery process to obtain some text messages that would be used as evidence in his trial, and that evidence isn't available. And, you know, that's going to have a very detrimental impact on his legal case. Uh, Potentially, it could be the deciding factor in his legal case. And once, you know, you've used an encrypted application, especially one where messages are automatically deleted, then you can't issue an injunction to force those messages to come back from, you know, the alternate universe where they reside, Uh, so So he's pretty much just screwed in this situation. I think the lesson here is there has to be a forced policy change at some of these police departments where, you know, in order to comply with records keeping laws like state freedom of information acts, there have to be limits on the use of encrypted applications. I don't think you have to ban them because I think Signal can be useful for law enforcement purposes, even if. You're not trying to conceal the trash talk about your colleague. Um, right. but I, think there needs, I think there needs to be some policies about when it can be used, how it can be used, and how to use it while still complying with records retention laws.
1: How is this different from, say, a police officer, in, instead of using the public radio channels, you know, someone could listen in on a police scanner, sometimes you'll hear a police officer say to another police officer, hey, you know, call me on my cell phone. That sort of thing. So we're we're going to take this conversation out of official channels, and we're going to use our private communications devices to continue this. Is that okay? (laughs) Do you have an issue with that, or how does this differ from that?
2: No, I mean, I I actually think that's a, a very apt parallel. It is generally okay under most circumstances. I should say, not necessarily it's okay, but it usually is not something that leads to the punishment of individual police officers. It might go Mm -hmm. against department policy, and in many Mm -hmm. cases it does, Mm -hmm. but these policies probably are not strictly enforced, and you'd never find out about two officers using private channels unless it was brought up in uh, litigation, which it almost never would be. You know, what I think is unique about messaging applications is just the fact that you're using an encrypted application. And I guess this is true for the, your phone call example as well. It means that at least it would seem to a potential litigant on the other side that you were trying to conceal some information. Because you know if you were talking about legitimate police business, or if you were talking about something that was completely above board, you would just use Apple's messaging service or whatever. Right. Um, so I think it can kind of create that suspicion so that you know that that kind of makes it a double edged sword but i think your i think your metaphor is apt i think it is like that i think most most times law enforcement chooses not to use official channels nobody really finds out about it and there isn't really a, a lot of accountability
1: yeah and i guess it's one thing if you know uh, uh, one officers connecting with the other to decide you know where they're going to have lunch uh, versus, uh, you know, talking about official business or or how are we going to handle this, uh, you know, this interrogation or something like that, right?
2: Right, right, exactly. Now, you know, how to handle an interrogation or how to conceal messages from the public that are critical for law enforcement purposes. That potentially would be a legitimate use of a end-to-end encrypted application, and mm. what the spokesperson for the police office at issue here said is... Well, we we do have policies. These end-to-end encrypted applications can be downloaded for legitimate state business. But then they asked a follow-up question, TechDirt did, to provide examples of, of what those legitimate purposes would be, and they did not respond. So I think transparency is important here. If you're going to allow, if you're going to permit end-to-end encrypted applications to be used by law enforcement, there at least has to be some sort of publicly listed policy on when and how it can be used and how you can use it while still complying with records retention rules. You know, and people take records retention laws very seriously. I remember a uh, prominent politician having a whole scandal about her emails based on the fact that she was potentially violating records retention laws. Right, Uh, right. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's not something that we can just scoff at and say, eh, you know, Freedom of Information Act, how many how many cases are actually going to turn on that? I, I think these are things that are very important, and you can't just kind of have an ad hoc policy on it.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, again, an interesting article there. It's uh, over on Tech Dirt, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can send it in. Our email is caveat at the cyberwire.com. You can also call and leave us a message. It's 410-618-3720. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI... Ben, I recently uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Jenna Waters. She's from an organization called True Digital Security. Uh, And she and I look back on the last year of COVID and how it's affected privacy, particularly on the medical side of things. Here's my conversation with Jenna Waters.
0: So unfortunately, I can't say that we're doing all that well, which really isn't surprising. Obviously, this is what I like to call the battle of the goals essentially, a hospital or a clinic or a you know health insurers primary goal in life is to serve the patients or serve their customers. And that oftentimes, especially in hospitals, conflicts with cybersecurity, it conflicts with privacy protections, it conflicts with compliance. Now, HIPAA does a great job in terms of hospitals and health insurers and clearinghouses and helping hold them accountable. But where we find ourselves now is HIPAA kind of predates the current healthcare evolution into our very digital, very mobile age by, I think we're going on 25 to 30 years. I can't really Mm. do the... full math in my head right now. But we're seeing an uptick in ransomware. We're seeing some very serious attacks happening in the telehealth systems. And then we're also kind of seeing this interlude playing between track and trace apps of, is it, should we protect people's privacy or should we track COVID-19? And it's about really striking that balance and we're having a hard time doing it And I definitely think that the entire security posture of the healthcare industry has been really damaged by COVID-19. It will take years for them to recover.
1: How so? What what does that damage look like?
0: In terms of what it looks like now, for context, and this is probably the easiest way to put it, is in Hmm. some numbers that are really relatable. In 2021 alone, we're three weeks into 2021 and already we have about two reports to OCR per week. So that's just those that have reported. So that's over 500 records. That's not reporting any hack or data breach that has occurred in terms of under 500 records or that haven't completed their investigation. So if we look at that trend and we look at last year's trends where ransomware, particularly with specific types of maize and Ryuk resurfacing, we're really seeing a huge increase in the targeting of our healthcare industry. It's definitely kind of disturbing and scary, mm. and especially when right now, you know, healthcare workers need all the support they can get because they don't really have time to worry about someone hacking their infrastructure. If you're found in violation of or negligence in terms of a data breach, that can cost anywhere. I I believe last year it was like fines up to $101.5 million. Hmm. And that's on the compliance side. On the security side, damage per lost electronic health record is about $400 per electronic health record Hmm. per person. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: And it adds up fast.
0: And it adds up very quickly, especially for hospitals, especially right now when where people are struggling to find beds for people in some states. So they're definitely overrun. And they've had to also lax some enforcement and compliance rules in terms of HIPAA, which I understand is what the Times call for. But I think we're definitely going to need to see an overhaul in how hospitals are approaching cybersecurity, but also how the industry of cybersecurity can help sort of drive that change and enable them to structure their growth and maturity in a way that also enables them to treat patients.
1: Now, in your mind, how much of this is unique to the system we have here in the US. Are there other nations who have healthcare systems that because of the way they're structured, they are set up to do a better job than what we're able to do here?
0: Well, I'm not entirely sure since we we tend to be sort of an outlier in the United States, just simply based because our healthcare system is so complicated. If I look at it in terms of a global scale, I can't give you facts or figures at the moment in terms of that answer because I do primarily right. focus all of my work within the United States. Yeah. But it seems like it is a global issue. It is definitely a global issue. It, I can really only speak for the U.S. No, but. that's
1: fine. That, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Now, <laughs> in terms of HIPAA itself, where are, are some of the, the areas that it's sort of, you know, straining under its own weight? What are some of the areas that that you think need adjustment?
0: Well, I mean, it doesn't do a very good job in tackling mobile health records. So mobile devices, IoT devices, it doesn't do a very good job in terms of expanding its breadth of compliance criteria. The way HIPAA works is you have a certain type of data that's EPHI, which I'm sure you know. It covers a specific type of information, but HIPAA only covers, you know, hospitals. So healthcare entities are covered entities. So that's your hospitals, your clinics, your doctor's offices, you know, that kind of thing. But it was expanded to include business associates. However, what we define as... Health data is very, very specific. And what we define as a covered entity in a business associate, again, is very specific. So a good example are the track and trace apps that are being developed by Google and by Apple. So they're, I think, believe they're actually working together on these, which is mm-hmm. a new collaboration. Good on them, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it's questionable whether or not it covers these check and trace apps, even if you're reporting in these applications, and I believe some states are using them, some states are using more of a web application, but I'm specifically talking about the mobile applications. These mobile applications, even if you report that you have COVID, you were diagnosed with COVID, it can be called into question, is that HIPAA data? Hmm. Um, Specifically because they can argue that it's anonymized, it's localized to the device, and that kind of thing, which poses its own risks, absolutely it does to both privacy and security, right, for the individual. But then you also have the fact that public health departments are not considered by HIPAA to be a covered entity, and the trackers and like Fitbits or wearables, those aren't covered, even though they are tracking your health data. So it's hmm. it's definitely needs to have a good an update. In terms of what it covers, in terms of industry, as a matter of fact, I would personally and this is or professionally think that instead of defining one specific industry or who is or who is not a covered entity, I think HIPAA should just be industry agnostic. I think it hmm. should cover any company or hospital or entity that is collecting health data about the individual, because then it can be more easily standardized in terms of how we look at health data and how we protect the privacy of patients.
1: You know, I'm, I'm thinking about like uh, something like Facebook that tracks so many things and, and uses it to, to target users with advertising and then, of course, makes money off of it. I mean... I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. If, you know, if Facebook, for example, makes note that, uh, you know, if someone has diabetes or they are in a wheelchair, if they have dandruff, you know, like these are all you know, potentially tidbits of information that have medical implications to mm-hmm. someone, but passing that information around to give me ads for all those things, am I right in, in thinking that that's not something that would be covered by HIPAA?
0: So part of it is. That's the actual. But a lot of it is not. So correct, you're correct. Huh. A lot of it is not covered by HIPAA. What is interesting is it was 2016. So we ended up passing what's called the 21st Century Cures Act Amendments or amends, uh, which amends HIPAA, uh, the privacy rule of HIPAA. It allows HIPAA-covered entities to disclose PHI for research-related quality, safety, and effectiveness of other products um, and activities. That's really... Only specific to those that are regulated by the FDA, which I don't think Facebook is regulated by the FDA. Right. <laughs> so, no, none of that is covered, especially because I think it's the argument would be that the individual is, quote unquote, consenting to that data collection by use rather than it's, it's that implicit consent rather than an explicit consent.
1: Right, right. The good old Eula, right? Yes. That, uh, <laughs> anything I say or share here on this platform may be used to advertise to me, I suppose, right?
0: Exactly. That's exactly yeah. it. And it's not covered by HIPAA. So interesting. But I think there needs to be a threshold to where it is. I think that we have to take our health data incredibly seriously. It's definitely one of the only forms of data that an individual has a a legal Legislated right to privacy towards. And I really think we need to be looking at expanding HIPAA to cover that across industries, as well as kind of shoring up what kind of technology it does and doesn't cover.
1: Is there any movement in that direction? I mean, where do things stand in terms of political will?
0: That's a complicated question. I hope that it's going in the right direction. I mean, we've heard. Uh, especially recently, a lot of advocacy groups and politicians start talking about data privacy, which is, you know, the first step. And I think HIPAA is poised, particularly with health data and the gaps that have been kind of discovered or brought to light by COVID-19. I think we could use HIPAA as sort of the launching base towards broader data privacy. Again, because we don't have to pass a whole new legislation we just have to expand an already existing one. And I think there is at least social and cultural will for that to happen. Political will, I am starting to see it, which is hopeful. However, I think it has to also be noted that multiple political entities do take you know, donations and do take money and depend upon these social media and data collection companies. And I think that that's going to be a factor in how far we can get in terms of protecting health data, protecting any kind of individual consumer private, like data privacy um, legislation. I just think HIPAA is a really good launching point for that conversation because it already exists. It's just continuing to expand the individual right of an individual to have their data be between them and their doctor and not them and Facebook.
1: It doesn't sound controversial and yet here we are, right?
0: (laughs) Somehow things that aren't supposed to be controversial end up being controversial.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hopefully that changes. (laughs) I do definitely want to touch on these track and trace apps that are occurring that I'm Mm. seeing because there is this idea that they are protecting privacy and security in terms of how they work. So they use Bluetooth technology to kind of ping the person next to you and alert you if that person's been uh, like near somebody else who's tested positive. And again, without getting into the technical weeds because I could talk all day about them. Unfortunately, Bluetooth is notorious for being very noisy in terms of who and how it talks. It's the person in the room like that's bouncing from person to person to person <laughs> during a party, talking to everybody, right. you know, <laughs> right. that's right. Bluetooth. Bluetooth is the person right. that has to make sure you know they're there. And that's every device. So I just want to urge people and companies when they think of implementing these track and trace apps or using them for their employees or for themselves as an individual, take that into consideration that Bluetooth isn't very secure it's actually very wanting in that department. And that even though they're saying the data is localized on the phone, the phone itself is a giant tracking box. <laughs> every, right. every piece of data that flows through your iPhone or your Android phone, your telecom provider knows about. <laughs> um, right. So it's just to have that, I think that that's something, again, mm-hmm. why you know, legislation like HIPAA needs to be expanded, as well as the definition of what does and does not count as protected health data to cover new technologies that are coming out. And so that we can ensure new technology is meeting what people need.
1: All right, Ben, what do you think?
2: A couple of things. First, first of all, I can't believe we've been doing this for a year. It (laughs) kind of hits you that we're going around around in the second cycle of, of things being canceled. So, you know, Last year, the first thing that was canceled was St. Patrick's Day parades. And now we're already mm-hmm. hearing about this year's St. Patrick's Day parades <laughs> being canceled. So right. that part is, that part is depressing. I thought it was a really interesting interview just because COVID has presented a lot of novel issues as it relates to data privacy. Part mm-hmm. of it is one of the effective ways of containing public health threats is obtaining a lot of information that's potentially HIPAA protected. That's unique to public health emergencies. Usually somebody else's medical problem isn't any of our business. But when we're talking about something as pervasive as COVID, it is our business because we need a lot hmm. of information on who got the disease, uh, who were their close and immediate contacts, You know, what are their demographic characteristics. So I think it's just presented this unique scenario that We have not confronted yet in an age where we've been concerned about data privacy. The other point that she made that I thought was undercovered and sort of fascinating when you asked about her optimism about whether we'd have federal legislation on data privacy was that there are a lot of financial contributors to politicians who would benefit from not having federal data privacy legislation. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that's something that's really important to remember. I don't think, you know, in all of our conversations about that, we've really identified that as a factor. And I think it is a factor. So I'm glad that she brought it up. But it it was a really interesting interview.
1: Yeah. Well, again, our thanks to Jenna Waters uh, for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time for us.